0: listening to the best bits of the breakfasters from 3RR. Hi, it's
1: Sarah, Jeff, and Geraldine, Breakfasters 2016 with our first podcast of the year running from 22nd of Feb to the 26th of Feb. It's been an interesting
2: first week. We talked to Toby Halligan about the rise of Donald Trump and the end of Jeb Mentum. Uh, we talked about a bit of a chat about George Pell and growing up Catholic.
3: Well, yeah, which was quite an interesting chat. Um, also, we had Dr. Jen in for Weird Science talking about colouring in and the benefits of it and the science behind that. Also, we had a chat to Ed Hill from the Goongra Environment Centre or Gecko, Um and he had a, we had a great chat with him about saving old wood forests. And that
2: pronunciation of Goongra, nailed it.
3: Thank you very much. Nailed I worked it. on that a lot.
2: <laughs> In the news, uh, both today and yesterday, we've been talking about uh, the Royal Commission into child sex abuse, preparing for George Pell to give his evidence from his hotel room in um, in uh, in Rome. Rome. There's been um, a lot of discussion about Pell. Tim, people will have heard Tim Minchin's song that's been raising awareness about. The, the need for Pell to come back to Australia. And there's, since then, there's been something of a pushback in the media um, with people defending Pell's role. Andrew Bolt has had several columns about it. Ger- Gerard Henderson has written extensively about it. So I thought for this media segment, um, we might discuss an article that I found. It's an old article. It's not currently in the media, but it's kind of relevant. It's giving some context as to why people are so keen for uh, Pell to come back to Australia. This is a piece from Catholic News in 2002. It's entitled, Pell Calls Abortion a Greater Crime Than Sex Abuse. It's a report from uh, World Youth Day in Toronto where responding to a question... um, from a youth minister from Kentucky about what Catholics should say when asked about the sex abuse crisis in the US Catholic Church. he spelt, uh, Pell, who was then the Archbishop of Sydney, said, abortion is a worse moral scandal than priests sexually abusing young people. It's quite extraordinary.
3: Yep. Oh, <laughs> I, like, where do you... Oh, it's, it's, it's really hard. He's, like, I, I grew up a Catholic... I think so you did as well yeah, yeah. I did, yeah and it's this whole thing is so horrible um and I like I went to world I, I didn't go to that world youth day where he said that but I went to world youth day in 2001 to Rome with George Pell um and it's and it's weird cuz I I like I didn't know who he was like I knew you know I found out once we were there, like, oh yeah, that's that's the Archbishop of Melbourne. I'm like, oh yeah, good on him, you know. And I saw him as just a an, a guy that was, you know, on school camp with us, essentially. That there the were. It was big, like there was, I like we went to I went to um to Israel with him, um wasn't just him I should say there was like two hundred a group of two hundred Aussies that all went and he just happened to be part of that group and there was like you know people of various ages and stuff it's all youth but, like a lot of young adults and he was there and I just knew him as like we one night we had a um a, a talent show night, and I got up and did stand up for the first time and. George Pell came up to me afterwards and said, "I'm your biggest fan." And I'm like, so wow. "I can't write that <laughs> on <along> the <a> poster <laughs> anymore." Good.
2: George Pell, my, my George Pell's role in your comic yeah. stand-up
3: career. I know, but I can't use that anymore. No, you really never
2: can't. could. I never could. Um, but I get I guess it's why people. I mean, I, I didn't grow up Catholic, but um, I know a lot of people who did feel a real tremendous sense of betrayal. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's really full
1: on. Do you like, identify You don't identify as Catholic anymore? No. Obviously, yeah. No.
3: And it's mostly f- from from this, you know. It's once all that started coming out, it was just like, how can I be, how can you be part of that?
2: Mm. I, I mean, should clarify, he said at the time, his comments were not de- designed to downplay sexual abuse. He was merely trying to point out that sex abuse by Catholic clergy had attracted attention to the detriment of other issues. And that Christ promises punishment for those who stray from the church's teachings on premarital sex, abortion and euthanasia.
1: It's interesting because my impressions of Pell were always that he was a polarising character. Mm. Even for those who were staunch Catholics or within the Catholic Church, he was someone who was seen to have kind of political aspirations within the church, I'd say. He really wanted to go to Rome and he wanted to be a part of that. And so I think that it's interesting kind of seeing this come up now. Um, maybe for a few years he kind of got away with saying things that were like this, like this. I mean, it's it's a surprise that this didn't get more attention back then. Maybe it was pre-social well, media and maybe it did get attention.
2: An awful lot of people in Australia have abortions. It's a fairly common yeah. procedure. And then to say that that's a worse crime than child sex abuse it is quite extraordinary, isn't
1: it? Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And it's, I, I, I find it strange that he's not being held to account more so for these things that he said in the past now like i think now as the leader that he is you'd think that within the catholic church someone like that should be held accountable for stuff that i said in the past or have to explain yeah. it in some way can, can i just ask you guys for people growing
3: up catholic was it as much Just a lot of guilt all the time. <laughs> no.
2: well, was it as much um, almost like a sort of social identity as it was a religion?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, yeah. I don't. I haven't identified as Catholic for a long time for various reasons, um, and probably not since I was fifteen to tell you the truth. Mm. And I wouldn't say I I am Catholic at all anymore. But when I was younger, it formed the the absolute core of I'd say my. F- Family social life, in some way, in that I went to a Catholic primary school. And if there wasn't, you know, all of your kind of social things had to do around the church on a Sunday mm. or um, Sunday school or even uh, like youth group, youth and, group and, and those yeah. kinds of things. So it, it was, uh, whether or not you were particularly religious, it did kind of just form the, the, the center of your community growing up. So I think it was a very strange thing, too, when you suddenly go, oh, I'm not. I don't feel like I identify in any way with this religion anymore, uh, and you're kind of trying to find yourself, and then you go, but this has been uh, kind of the it's, basis of my 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 life as a as a child for many years, and the community that I grew up around was very much entrenched in the Catholic Church. So it's a really strange thing to separate yourself from that because it's not a question of religion anymore; it's a question of kind of family ties yeah, sometimes that and is social spot ties. On.
3: It's so spot on, like you know in In our family like we went to I would go to church every week and it was like if I if I missed going to church like on a on a Sunday, like if I had a sleepover or something or got home and mum's like you haven't made to church then I would have to get up and go before school on a Monday morning. It was just ingrained and that's what you did every weekend. And even um, like I went home recently for my dad's birthday and we just had it in the backyard. And my uncle is a priest. And the next morning it was like, everyone come back and they have they had mass in the backyard in the next morning. Um, I, was, I, I, didn't get to go, but it was that that kind of, that's just what happened, you know. It's this real community. So, yeah, it's spot on what you said, and it's where that betrayal comes in as well. It's just like, how do you. Yeah, how do you separate yourself from something that really is a, a part of
1: you? Particularly, I think when your experiences as a young person were positive for the most part. I think mm. it wasn't until I became an adult that I saw the damage that I that I felt like, you know, was kind of created by um, the church. As you kind of get a bit more conscious. But if as a child your experiences in the church were um, positive ones, and then there's that as well. You think, gosh, how horrific it is! Even more horrific than that, it was such a uh, horrible experience for other people that, you know, there's something, there's a guilt in that as well. It's like, gosh, mm. right, well, I look back on my time as a young person and go, oh, that was really positive. And then there's a whole lot of people who it literally destroyed their lives. So
2: mm. oh, I'll put the link to this piece on our social media accounts. But just before we leave this, just a question for both of you. Is there part of you that misses it?
1: I think mm. that I miss the idea of having... A community, but I think that I replaced that community with the music yeah. music community. As I got older, I just shifted. I just shifted my allegiance, and I, you know, I kind of let religion go and and went and started watching bands instead. <laughs> yeah, I think probably comedy's the same for me. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Excellent.
0: You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from Three Triple R.
2: The Goongarra Environment Centre has the fortunate acronym Gecko. It's been running a uh, campaign against logging, which has been centred around an uh, intriguing citizen science survey. Ed Hill is the spokesperson person for Gecko. Welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Can you start to tell us by telling us a little bit about uh, the Environment Centre and the work that it does?
4: Sure. Well, Gecko has been around for about twenty years. Some of your listeners will probably familiar with some of our work, or maybe some of you have been out there before, um, we've been campaigning for the protection of East Gippsland's forest since 1993, um, pretty famous for coordinating the longest running forest blockade in Australia's history, which was the Gook blockade It lasted for five years and resulted in the addition of that amazing area of old growth forest into Under National Park. Um, and recently we've been really focused on citizen science, doing a lot of threatened species surveying. Um, in areas of forest that are uh, scheduled to be logged.
2: So logging is still an ongoing issue there, the, the, that the success of the Goulangook campaign hasn't halted the threat
4: from uh, logging? Unfortunately not. Um, when Steve Brax protected Goulangook or committed to protecting Goulangook back in 2006, uh, it was finally protected in 2009. The idea was to protect Victoria's remaining old-growth forests or significant stands of old-growth forests. Unfortunately, the reserve outcome that came in then was... Um, not, not as uh, not as good as it should be, and yeah, the old growth forests of the far east of the state uh, continue to be logged, mostly for, for low grade um, pulp products. Um, so you know, paper and other low grade products like beer pellets. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, logging of uh, old growth forest continues, and these are some of the most um, these are some of the most amazing places in, in the state, but not many people in Melbourne probably realise that um, they're still subject to, to clearfell logging.
1: I genuinely didn't know that until we were going to do this interview. Like, I understood that there was still logging, but I didn't know that it was still old growth forests were still being logged in Victoria. Um, and what role does
2: the um, citizen survey plan? Is, is the idea that before the loggers go in, they have to do a survey to make sure... Um, yep to have some sense of what it is is going to be destroyed?
4: Yeah, yeah, so there's a whole suite of laws that that Vic Forests, who are the government-owned logging company, um, have to comply to when they they log in areas of state forest, and a lot of these laws protect um, uh, threatened species or, or, yeah, rare and threatened species. Um, Unfortunately, they don't do a lot of surveying before they go in to identify... um, if threatened species are present in the area or not and put in the required protections. So that's where we come in and we come in and conduct surveys in areas that are scheduled for logging, looking for rare, threatened and protected species that require protection under the law. Uh, We compile, we gather information on the presence of those species and we put it into scientific reports, which we submit to the Department of Environment, uh, who are meant to regulate the industry. So they're the ones that that are meant to make sure that Vic Forests, who are the state-owned logging company who are doing the logging, comply to the laws that protect our environment. But unfortunately... It's a bit of a system of self-regulation where you've got a government agency regulated by a government department and they have a pretty cosy relationship. So that's where we come in and we submit these reports and apply pressure to the government to protect areas. And we've had some really great success um, over the years in getting additional areas of forest protected for the threatened species that they contain uh, and set aside as habitat reserves for those species.
2: It does seem quite a strange idea that um, the people doing the logging would then be asked to discover whether there are
4: any obstacles that would prevent them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean Yeah from the outsider's perspective it seems like the obvious thing is to say, No, it's not. It's yeah, terrific yeah. to log in. That's right.
4: Yeah. It's a pretty obvious conflict of interest. It's kinda of like a you know, a tobacco company saying, No, there's nothing wrong with our cigarettes. They're they're perfectly fine. Smoke away. Um, yeah. Uh,
2: and what, what does a citizen science survey look like? You know, do you just get volunteers to go out there or yeah, specialists so we, who do it or how does it work? We've
4: got a bit of a core crew out there at the centre who um, constantly chip away at, at this stuff and we do lots of different things, whether it be spotlighting for um, arboreal mammals like greater gliders... Um, or looking for threatened owls, like powerful owls, sooty owls, um, playing the sound of the owl with a megaphone and then recording their response. Oh, no,
1: that's awesome. Yeah,
4: yeah. And or uh, well, we put out remote sensing cameras, um, which we can leave out in the bush for like three months and they just pick up movement that walks past them. So any animal that walks past them, it triggers them and they take a photo um so we put them out for animals like the endangered long-footed potteroo which is only found in far east gippsland what is and that it's like a little kangaroo rat mm. kind of thing and super cute yeah and, um, they're cool yeah, yeah they eat truffles oh. i have yeah. uh,
2: gotta say uh, correct me if i'm wrong but the greater glider is also known as a clumsy possum is that right
4: well the abc will uh, decided to describe it that way. It's
2: a bit sort of bumbling around. <laughs> yeah. like, dole, dole.
4: They're a bit clumsy on land, uh, right. but extremely graceful when they're up the trees. They don't really walk on. They're, they're Australia's largest gliding um, marsupial, so they're like a big possum that can fly. Oh, that wow. eats gum leaves. Kind of like <laughs> a koala. They're just pieced out on gum leaves all night. <laughs> they don't move around much. They really avoid gliding, but they can glide up to 100 metres. Wow. Um, so we recently found a really high population of, of these guys up on the Under Plateau in uh, an area of forest that was scheduled for logging. Um, they depend on old-growth forest because they need the hollows that they provide for, for to live in. Um, so, yeah, we did a survey, and we actually found 15 in 800 metres. And... Uh, To get the area protected, you need to find greater than 10 within a kilometre. So what we found was much higher than the threshold for protection. And that resulted in the protection of 100 hectares of forest that was going to be logged. And the um, loggers were actually actively in there, actually about to start logging. And they had to move out in uh, as a result of the the work that we did collecting that data, uh, alerting the government, and we also sort of CC our lawyers in as well, and that kind of helps.
1: Um, I, I don't understand. If you're not doing this,
4: who is? Like, yeah, well, that's a pretty good question. So uh, unfortunately, there's just not enough monitoring of. Um, The decline of our threatened species out there particularly in you know logging areas um so we're really we're calling for an independent body for lisa neville the environment minister we we're lobbying her to order an independent body to to do these surveys Mm. um so you know independent ecologists to come in and say look there's threatened species here there's significant environmental values here like rainforest or other values that are protected Um, we've identified them here's where you can and can't log instead the logging company comes in and says, oh, no, there's nothing to see here. Um, Carry <laughs> on. <Okay. laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we really want an independent body um, to be doing it. And, um, yeah, but... It,
3: in in it, the meantime, are you still looking for volunteers and, and things like that?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So we run um, citizen science camps. Mm-hmm. We run them every three months. And we've got another one coming up on the March long weekend, just in a, in a couple of weeks, um, March the 11th till the 14th, and that's out in Goongar. And you can come out and they're free. Um, camp in, in the campground at Goongar. It's a beautiful, beautiful campground on the Broad Rib River there. We've got a camp set up and um, you can learn about the ecology of the area. Oh, wow. Survey techniques, um, learn from, you know, expert ecologists and, um, you know, botanists and stuff that, that come out and... Um, we get her out and do some surveys, collect some data, um, go and have a look at areas that are scheduled for logging and see what data we can come up to to try and protect them.
2: We'll put the Gecko website out on social media. People can contact you through that, I'm sure.
4: Yeah, no worries. Yeah, it's just gecko.org.au. Just before
2: before we go, what then is the overall state of um, old-growth forests and its protection in Victoria?
4: Well, unfortunately, most of the old-growth forests that were left out of the reserves that went in in... In the '80s, um, have been logged. Um, we're down. We're down to uh, you know less than five percent um, across the state of, of the pre-existing yeah. old growth forests, um, and that number is constantly dwindling as well. Um, so yeah, there's not there's not a lot left. But um, without the effort that's been put in by the movement over the years, there'd be very very little left and most of the reserves that are put in are sort of zoned in areas that they weren't going to log anyway, that were inaccessible right. or not commercially um, valuable. So without the effort of the movement and the movement that's continuing to, to put in that effort, uh, there, there wouldn't be much left at all. So we've got some pretty good places uh, protected as a result of the, our work and hoping to uh, continue that work until uh, Victoria's Forest are given the protection they deserve.
2: Because I think a lot of people, and Sarah mentioned, but a lot of people kind of thought, OK, this is being a battle that had been won. Mm. But mm. you're sort of saying there was a certain sleight of hand that went on
4: there. Well, there's been a few sort of incremental gains over the years, but unfortunately no one government has really had the guts to finally uh, completely fix this problem and, uh, and, and actually protect Genuinely protect um, the remaining significant stands of forests across the state. So there's been little incremental gains along the way, but there's still still a long way to go, and there's still threatened species habitat that's you know being clearfelled, logged, um, and there's still. Um, yeah, old-growth forest that's that's falling, some of the oldest trees in Australia.
2: Turn into beer pallets. All right, well, mm. that's very depressing. People want to get involved. The website gecko.org.au will put it out on social media. We've been talking to Ed Hill, spokesperson from the Ge- Gungara, Gungara Environment Centre. Gecko, let's just call it Gecko. Let's just call it Gecko. <laughs> Thanks very much for coming in, Ed. Thanks, no worries. Ed. Thanks, guys.
4: Yes.
0: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
2: It's a great pleasure to be joined on breakfasts by the weirdest of the scientists, Dr Jen.
0: How do you know we just met, mate? How do you know I'm weird?
2: I just got this vibe about you.
0: Yeah, okay, you've read me really well. Let's just
2: move right along. Today we're talking about uh, the adult colouring in craze what maybe just explain i'm sure most people know about this but what are these adult coloring books When I think about adult colouring books, I'm thinking about something you'd sell from, you know, dirty bookshores.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. You have to be careful whether we talk about adult colouring books (laughs) or colouring books for adults because I think there may well be a slight (laughs) distinction there. So let's be clear, it's breakfast time. We are talking about colouring books for adults. But it's exactly like you say. They're just colouring books. They're just, you know, books with pieces of paper with designs where the black outlines are provided and you get to put in the colour. And the sales have just been absolutely phenomenal so people who've lamented that you know it's the end of the book as we know it said that the coloring book has saved us effectively because you know it started in france three years ago and the sales have been absolutely phenomenal i think last year in australia 22 million actually maybe that was worldwide but 22 million dollars People buying colouring books.
2: I can't tell you as a writer how depressed that makes me, <laughs> <laughs> makes me feel.
0: Well, seriously, and people have come out and said that, you know, if this is all we've got left when it comes to books, then, you know, effectively it's the, it's the apocalypse. You know, we should all just go into our graves now because it's so depressing. But So I kind of approached this topic thinking, well, really, could they be as good as people say they are? Because people yes. don't spend that amount of money... You know, not everybody is stupid. Let's Mm. start from that premise. If people are spending huge amounts of money on both the books and the pencils, a very well-known brand, which we shan't mention, said they had a 600% increase in colour pencil sales last Uh, year. And
2: so what is the the claim that these things are are therapeutic? Is that the idea? Yeah,
0: exactly, that they're therapeutic. So, you know, art therapy has been around for centuries. We know that art therapy can help you if you've just been diagnosed with cancer, if you're trying to deal with cancer treatment, if you're suffering dementia, if you're... um, suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. There's heaps of scientific evidence that art therapy is incredibly good for helping people. And when you say good for them, it, it, does it help physical
1: physically mentally or what kind of what does it provide yeah so
0: there's massive evidence that it can help with your pain tolerance It can help you to feel less anxious about whatever procedure you're about to have or you've had you know people going through chemotherapy who obviously have both massive massive physical and emotional side effects um, or consequences Um, yeah Art can help, but let's be clear. Art therapists have come onto the record and said, without question, colouring in is not art I therapy. Was say <laughs> art therapy is highly specialised. And to any art therapist out there listening, we are not for, suggest- for a moment suggesting that colouring in is the same thing. But you know, the claims are that colouring in basically is stress relief. It helps you manage anxiety. It helps you feel calm, and. The reading that I did suggests that, in fact, it's true. So anyone who's hoping I'm going to come out and say, no, it's all a a sham, it's a fraud, (laughs) you've been conned, you know, go and ask for your money back. If you think about it, when you're colouring in or if you watch a child colouring in, what are they doing? They're calm, they're quiet, they're very focused and they're just making really simple decisions around colours. You know, this is this little space here, I'm going to make this green, I'm going to make this red. It's a calming activity and it's not surprising that adults are finding the same thing. I do it. I'm a big fan of it. Uh, I've yeah, it's it, and, and it's exactly what you say for
3: me. I also do that and and Lego was a big one for me yep. as well. Um, but yeah, the coloring. It's just that being able to sit there and just do something and not have to think about anything else because you know exactly. my mind is like because the anxiety I'm like oh and then it's just like oh no I'm just green is going there I'm a big fan of it.
0: So there's this really interesting study working with soldiers who were suffering post-traumatic stress disorder and the idea is that if you're exposed to a traumatic event and then your mind is kind of left to its own devices those traumatic images get you know consolidated into long-term memories and post part of post-traumatic stress disorder is those coming back as flashbacks and you being plagued by seeing these images. What they found is that if you get somebody to play Tetris, soon after they've been exposed to this traumatic imagery, then the part of the brain that the kind of spatial visual part of the brain that would be involved in those images getting you know kind of consolidated it doesn't happen really? because your brain is focused on the the space and the colour and the having to rotate images and make you know make your Tetris. Is that game the same work.
3: like when I play too much of a game and then <laughs> I start dreaming about it? Like I just see like if I play too much Tetris, for example, then I will start seeing those blocks coming down and imagining where I would put it and stuff? Is that the same thing or is that me displaying it too much?
0: Well, I don't want to diagnose (laughs) your, you know, your addiction here or anything. No, but the idea is that the part of your brain that has to be so focused on space and shape and colour... Is, is occupying the brain. So it doesn't allow for this traumatic imagery to kind of take hold of you. But so the argument is that colouring in could do the same thing because it's, it's the same. It's similar to Tetris. There's a shape. You're identifying the edges of the shape. You're working out the space in between. Your brain is completely preoccupied with those things and the colour. And so these the part of your brain that might be, you know, completely engaged with anxiety or stress or trauma or whatever can't function because it's already preoccupied with colouring. But so
2: is this an argument about any simple repetitive... Activity not specifically about colouring?
0: I think so. I think. I think it's kind of it's it allows people who are stressed about you know I'm not an artist I'm not creative it allows them to be artistic and creative people have called coloring in um, art with training wheels because you know (laughs) there's no stress you're not you're not given this blank page that you have to somehow create a masterpiece somebody's already done the hard work for you and you just get to kind of do the you know the coloring bit of it and the choices are really simple so you're not this whole idea of decision fatigue that you know we get so exhausted having to make decision after decision if the only decision you're making is what color it is then you know You know, it's a pretty easy decision to make. But people did a a study and looked at if you had um, a mandala. So people know, you know, mandala's beautiful kind of circular, lots of intricate patterns. Getting to colour in either a mandala or a series of kind of squares or a blank piece of paper and asked to colour in. And then they measured. So they tested how anxious you were before anything happened. Then they induced anxiety by making you remember the time you felt most frightened in your whole life and making you write (laughs) about it for four minutes. Monsters. Then tested in your anxiety level again and then getting you to spend 20 minutes either colouring a mandala, some squares or colouring in on a blank piece of paper. And the people who got the given the outlines had a massive improvement in their level of anxiety whereas the people who were given the blank piece of paper and told just colour something, stay just as anxious as as they were. This is where
1: I wanted to ask you something because I actually love colouring and I think it's great but I have an issue with the maybe marketing of like the mindfulness colouring in book because I was around at a friend's house recently whose child was having a little attack because it had too much sugar and she goes oh don't worry just sit sit with him sit with him gave me some pencils and things and we I mean, him and I sat and colored and i just watched mm. him go from 100 to 0 in 10 minutes and i kind of went with him i was like i'm all zen with this child but i was like we were just coloring in a 2 dollar shop coloring in book with these yep. really big images and there was nothing particularly special about it and some crappy crayons and i just kind of thought well maybe i don't to spend 50 bucks on a mindfulness yep. coloring in totally book agree. is that the case is it can it
0: be simple I think it can be really simple. Yeah. I think it's just providing you with some shapes to take the stress out of. Oh, I've got to create something beautiful, you know. Just giving you some outlines. I think a two-dollar book is totally fine. And there's, you know, it's huge business. Yeah. You know, and there's one of the most prominent um, neuroscientists who's on record talking about how brilliant it is and reckons he's measured brain waves and how our brain waves change from the kind of high-level stress brain waves to the zen brain waves. You know, he's got a range of books. Yeah. Being yeah. <laughs> sold, and I immediately become highly cynical about that and go oh are we sure about this but I think I mean it's effectively meditation the argument I've come up with after all the reading and thinking I've done is that you know those of us who struggle who know we should meditate but just can't quite make it happen this is effectively meditation and people say well I knit or I crochet or I do anything else and that's Mm. my version of meditation so why is colouring so popular well I think because you can do it anywhere it's effectively free if you don't believe you have to buy the top latest book. Um, You know, it can be done anywhere, anytime without any particular skills. So sure, if you're a knitter, It's probably exactly the same thing for you it's repetitive it's you know pattern all that sort of stuff Um, because we know meditation has profound effects on the brain I'm sure everyone listening has heard something about the fact that we know your brain actually changes if you meditate you get more grey matter um, in the areas associated with memory and learning and self-awareness and empathy and you get a better attention span you know meditation is massively important so maybe all those people who think they should be meditating but can't seem to manage to concrete that into their lives can spend time colouring and it can be done anywhere, anytime with the $2 book. From the rejection. Could, could there be
2: an element of um, reliving an activity from your childhood? Could that be playing a part that you're doing this thing that you did in yeah. kindergarten?
0: Yeah, that's been suggested as well. That it's this lovely nostalgic exercise of I know I used to do this when life was really simple. <laughs> <laughs> I, wasn't, I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a job. My life was so easy. So
2: you could make crappy clag kind of paper mache <laughs> things <laughs> as, <laughs> as, well,
0: as well. Finger painting, mm, yeah, paper mache. Yeah, I think that's part of it. So I think I think yeah, a lot of the a lot of the hoo ha is. It's just too hard. I don't know that really you have to go out and spend megabucks but anything that gets you to sit quietly and calmly and breathe and focus on something that's pleasurable, i.e. creating pretty pictures, how can it be bad? Mm.
2: I am totally setting up an empire of paper mache after this show. <laughs> People want to read more about this. Is there some sort of blog, perhaps, that they could go to. And oh. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one I prepared
3: <laughs> earlier. <laughs>
2: Thanks,
4: Jen.
0: <Jim. laughs> yeah, so every week, for people who haven't heard me um, yabbering on on breakfasts before, I have a blog post up every week. It goes up before I come on air on a Wednesday morning, and I try and link to all the primary scientific literature. So if you actually want to read some of the science that what I'm talking about is based on, then go to science.com.
2: Dr Jen, we will see you again in a week's time for more weirdness.
0: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
2: Toby Halligan is a comedian, political commentator. He's the brains behind the Political Asylum Stand-Up Collective. He's in the studio now to talk to us about this week's politics. How are you going, Toby? G'day, team. I'm very, very good. Very, very excited. And everything's going on. Well I was going to say Australians I think have this almost morbid fascination with American politics yeah. and
5: there's a lot to be morbidly fascinated with at the moment. Oh my goodness it's just like the whole thing is just like an Alice in Wonderland style acid trip right now. Because <laughs> like, uh, I've, I've been watching like American politics for quite a while and it's funny like everyone this year has been talking about how crazy it is and it's actually often quite crazy. Mm-hmm. Like in 2000, I don't, like it's easy to forget but it went to the Supreme Court, the result you know the Bush, Al Gore thing, that was oh, huge. Yes. Like when Edwards was running in the middle of the campaign, it came out he'd had a baby with That's another right. woman. Like, <laughs> so American presidential politics is usually pretty insane, but this, this is actually really, it's like a Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Well, yeah. let's talk us about some of the uh, recent oh, developments. Jeb out.
2: Mentum. Oh, me, has come to an end. We've been reporting, the, <laughs>
5: reporting in the
2: reporting the news that that he's a dream of being the third Bush president, which oh. I must say,
5: is there anyone else in the world who thought this was a good idea? Well I think I think people anticipated as much as the third Sharknado film. You know <laughs> like um <laughs> Well, there was this very sad moment months ago where his mother, Barbara Bush, actually said, I think the world's had enough of the Bushes. <laughs> like an unguarded moment. When your own mum is, like, saying, yeah, maybe not, Dale." then you really... Things are bad. Yeah. Um, and so I, I mentioned, yeah, like he, he finished, I think it was fourth, uh, uh, in the, the latest uh, race in South Carolina in the Republicans, and he's bailed. He spent $100 million of other people's money. So he's basically the east-west link of politicians. <laughs> um, so, yeah, look, uh, there was also this... this it's it's kind of sad in a way because he was just this ongoing embarrassment. There was this particular moment during, uh, I think, the New Hampshire caucus where he was kind of doing a town hall spiel and he was pitching himself as kind of a sensible, stable, quiet achiever and he finished it... And the crowd didn't clap. No. And he had to say, please clap.
1: Oh, <laughs> he literally yeah. had to ask him to clap. That is so... Oh. Oh, it's so all, you almost feel sorry for him, like almost. Well,
2: yeah. I, I was going to say, if you're part of a political family and um, George W. Bush... Is your brother, yet he's the
5: successful one.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you're the dud of the family and you're related to George W. Bush. There's something a um,
5: a, Uh, a bit wrong. Things have gone really wrong. It was interesting, though, because when... So Trump attacked Bush... One of the things that really impacted on Bush's numbers was that Donald Trump really went him. Like, he really went him early and repeatedly in prominent media attacks. Like, he called him boring and just a fool and often, like, on the debate stage, he would really go Trump. Uh, And that actually had a concrete impact on Trump's numbers. Like, in different polls, they dropped for about 12 to 6%, and that's kind of been what he's actually been polling at in a a lot of the actual... when the votes have been coming in. Um, So it'll be interesting to see who Trump kind of turns on now. Um, But... He's Teflon, like uh, in South Carolina, uh, Trump said during a debate, like he basically suggested that George W. Bush was effectively responsible for 9-11, that he'd failed to keep America safe, that he'd really failed the United States. And the crowd booed him. Like they screamed, like people were really angry. Um, South Carolina has a lot of veterans in it. Like it's a lot of people who still, you know, like... Look at the George W. Bush legacy kind of relatively favourably, but it didn't really dent his numbers. His numbers kind of came in pretty well as people respected. He got about 35%. Cruz and Rubio got about 20% each. So um, it's pretty amazing. Like, I can't remember.
1: uh, Do you think it's that people are just excited in America to have someone that the world is paying attention to or that seems exciting like i just don't understand where the trump momentum has come from
5: yeah like i think i i don't think americans care at all what the rest of the world thinks yeah, like good and, point. well Look, it's, no, it's amazing true, it's amazing how little like i remember i went on a month long trip there and you just don't find out about things going on like cuz the news is dominated by stuff going on the all around the number, states. number of people it's who so think big. you've come from austria yeah yeah exactly yeah. absolutely i think i'm a new zealand or a south african um uh, but I reckon the, the Trump phenomenon reflects the fact that over the last kind of 20, 30 years, the Republican Party has promised to its core base, who tend to be Anglo-Saxon, a lot of working-class people and business people as well. They've promised their base that they'll represent them on different kinds of cultural issues. Gun rights, tick, they've done that. Abortion, they haven't succeeded in doing that because of the balance of the Supreme Court. Gay marriage, they failed there because of the balance of the Supreme Court. But economically, um, a lot of the, the base of the Republican Party in the Midwest and the South is just a disaster zone. Like, there's large sections of the US that are really, really hurting. Like, mm. um, And uh, working-class, uh, older Anglo-Saxon men really have not been buoyed by those sections of the economy that have been going up at all. They've not benefited from it.
2: So we've gone from a situation where all the Beltway insiders were saying that Trump was... There's no chance he could win. Yeah. So now it almost seems like the
5: consensus is that Trump is unstoppable. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I still reckon there's a chance he'll get knocked off. Um... Well, when Super Tuesday comes around, because both Rubio and Cruz are still in the race, that Super Tuesday... So that's March the... Sorry, I had the date here before. Can you you explain
3: what Super Tuesday is?
5: Super Tuesday is when there are 12 different primaries, including some of the biggest primaries in the country. So, so far what we've had had is kind of quite hodgepodge primaries Mm. scattered around. Uh, Later this week, the Democrats will have a South Carolina primary and then the next one, I think on the 6th of March, uh, there'll be 12 big voting states, including huge states like um, Texas and just a lot of bellwether states like Alabama, Arkansas, Vermont, things like that. Um, And so Sanders will win a few of them. Whether he wins enough to maintain his momentum is kind of an open question. But if he wins, like, say, a third or half compared to Hillary, because the Hillary Sanders vote was actually very close. Mm. Like, she won 52.7%. I think one of the things that will be decisive is um, Sanders only got 22% of the African-American electorate, which is a substantial kind of democratic bloc. But um, while Cruz and Rubio are both in the race, I don't think they can knock Trump off. Uh,
2: Yeah. We should also say, I mean, that Cruz and Rubio are in many ways even more extreme than Trump. I mean, Trump is bringing in the headlines for his outlandish statements, but... um,
5: you know, I mean, there's some serious nutbaggery going on. with the 2 They're really dangerous dudes. Like, um, Cruz is probably the most conservative presidential candidate since um, Goldwater, who was a real nutbag in, like, the 60s. He is um, extremely right-wing. Their foreign policies are both extremely dangerous. One of the first things Rubio would do would be to rip up the nuclear deal with Iran. Like, they've both committed to doing that. Jeez. They've both committed to invading, to fight ISIS. Uh, they've, you know, made a whole variety of often... ...quite contradictory commitments. So uh, it's hard to see how they'd wiggle out of those promises. It's, and all,
1: it's also disturbing to think that that's... what I feel like that's not part of the conversation at the moment as mm. well... ...because we're so mm. focused on Trump and how extreme he is. We're all talking about, oh God, not Trump. But that is really disturbing yeah. and we're not talking about that at all.
5: Yeah, whereas Trump's foreign policy is much more inward-looking. His broad view is that America shouldn't be intervening... ...in a lot of the, you know, in those kinds of spheres... Which I think while to us seems incredibly strange and is antithetical, mm-hmm. it's actually been the American foreign policy approach for large sections of its history like it's why the. US was so reluctant to get involved in World War one and World War II mm-hmm. like it's a very inward looking country like they're often happy not intervening and arguably like after the Iraq war and I know you know in a situation like Syria your urge is to say, well you know the US should get involved, should help people and I kind of that's my instinct as well. But after Iraq, you've got to wonder like, whether American power can actually make things better necessarily. Mm. You know? mm. like Meanwhile, so in the Republican side, the, while
2: the, um, the populist candidate seems to be surging mm-hmm. in the, on the Democrat side, it's perhaps the other way around that we're now seeing a firming up of the establishment candidate,
5: Hillary yeah. Clinton. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Like the Democratic, it, basically the odds are so heavily weighted against Sanders that um, I think inevitably is going to gradually be drained of momentum. Like, he needed to pull off a series of flukes because his war chest is so much smaller than Hillary's. He just has hundreds of millions of dollars. And also she's accrued a huge number of superdelegates. So superdelegates are people who are prominent party officials, figures, you know, mayors, uh, congressmen, et cetera, and they can actually choose to vote for whichever candidate that they want within their party. Superdelegates are less of a thing for the Republicans, but they make up quite a substantial portion of the Democratic vote overall. And um, I think Sanders has two or three, whereas Clinton has hundreds, you know, hundreds and right. hundreds and hundreds. So it's it's mathematically, you know, very, very difficult to see how Sanders can continue to challenge her. You hope he continues pushing her because... Um, Right now, you know, like I think a lot of his ideas have clearly appealed to people because he's actually bothering to talk about things. Uh, a friend of mine has a, his dad's in Massachusetts and he's a Republican and he hasn't voted for a Democrat since JFK. And my, my friend was talking to him and saying, who are you going to vote for? Oh, God, they're all lying sons of bitches. <laughs> <laughs> going to vote for Sanders. He's the only honest one. And he's like, Sanders? Sanders wow. completely opposes all your ideas. You're like, yeah, but at least I know what he's going to do. Like, wow. So he'd rather vote for Sanders than, you know. And Clinton Clinton has a massive integrity problem, I think. A lot of people really, like you see in polls mm. on traits they believe she has. Like what do you think
1: of, that comes down to? I'm surprised by that.
5: Mm. Yeah, I think it's... Well, like, in the 90s, like, I, I, we, my dad's a political scientist so I wound up reading lots of kind of political cartoon magazines from that time. The Clintons were hammered for decades mm-hmm. over a variety of scandals involving money involving sex and Hillary was kind of tainted by a lot of those scandals because inevitably she was coming out and can she she wasn't often it wasn't her but her surrogates but it was kind of implicit that she was supporting attacks on a lot of the women who were coming out and claiming that bill had had affairs with them and things like that and i think she's just been tarred by that Greece, you know, like the raw ickiness mm. of those those years. It's, and the
1: it's m- interesting then that Bill's such an important part of her campaign because yeah. he's there and she talks about Bill and Bill's going and talking for her in places. And yeah,
5: absolutely. Yeah. we well, he's still beloved by a lot of the Democratic base, Yeah. but I think for a lot of voters generally, they remember the Clinton years as being... Uh, Pretty brutal politically. Yeah, and they're very much seen as part of the
2: the political establishment too, which makes which I think will be very interesting. Given the Trump campaign has been so much focused on being anti-establishment, mm-hmm. uh, I put it out there. I reckon Trump will win against Hillary. You reckon she?
5: You, <sighs> yep, yeah.
2: Yep. I, well. I reckon the target yeah. will be that she's business
5: as usual, and I'm the outsider. Yeah. But it'll be it'll be interesting mm. to see whether Trump line of attack changes when he's only up against one Republican. One thing you also see in a lot of the stats is independent voters and general election voters hate Trump. Mm-hmm. They really, really don't like him. Because I think they recognise he's, uh, he's a a <laughs> <Trump's laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's going to be lots to talk
2: about and um, thank you very much for coming in Not and giving all. your take. That's Toby Halligan from Political Asylum. Thanks so much for coming in. <laughs>